Coming up on Technation, a company that paused its work on hepatitis B to focus on treatments for COVID. Dr. Lawrence Blatt, the CEO of Alagos Therapeutics, joins me to talk about their idea for treating COVID. Then Technation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, tells us that all the current COVID vaccines are not actually the same. They fall in several different categories. And some news for all cancer treatments, including a tough one, ovarian cancer. I speak with Bill Newell, the CEO of Sutro Biopharma, about their approach and their results thus far. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2015, I was able to speak with Dr. David Linden, a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and author of Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. I asked him, what happens when your skin is touched? We think of touch as a single sense, but actually there are many, many different sensors in our skin acting in parallel. There are nerve endings that transduce heat and cold and itch and pain and pressure and vibration and all those different... We're just si sensors. Sensors everywhere. Sensors everywhere. When you think of it, it's, it's a very large array of sensors. If we took your skin off, it would be the weight of a bowling ball and it would be the size of nine large pizza boxes. So it's the biggest sensory array we have in the body. And it has all these different sensors, but these sensors are combined in a stream of information that goes to the brain. And so we don't experience all these different touch modalities as, as separate signals. They're, they're blended together in our consciousness. You say there's emotional touch and sensory touch. Yes, that's true. Uh, for every kind of touch, whether it is a caress or feeling in your pocket for a quarter or, or pain or a sexual touch, there are separate pathways and separate brain regions for the emotional aspect and what we call the discriminative aspect. So let me give you an example. If I were to uh, hit you on the thumb with a hammer, uh, the facts of that, which would get to your brain very quickly to an area called the somatosensory cortex, would all be about where on your body were you hit? What's the quality of the pain? Stabbing, burning, etc. And how intense is it? And then there would be another aspect to it, which is this is highly emotionally negative. Uh, this, and we think of, of pain as being intrinsically emotionally negative, but this is just a trick our brain plays on us. So if you have damage to the emotional touch center of your brain, and I hit you on the thumb with a hammer, instead of going, yeah, oh, that hurts, that's terrible, the way a normal person would, you would say in a very flat voice, yes, that hurts a lot. It's, it's not like being a masochist, right? Masochists have a big emotional response to pain. It just happens to be positive. So hit me again. Exactly. Pain asymbolics, which are the people who have this damage, have no emotional response to pain. And we only have to look to our everyday language to see this reinforced. So uh, 
we might say, I was touched by that gesture. You hurt my feelings. Uh, and the idea of touched meaning emotionally affected or my feelings to mean my tender emotions, you might think, well, that's just not something deeply biological. That's just a trick of modern day English. But it isn't. It's actually broadly cross-cultural if you look in different languages. So let's get to itch. Itch and scratch. So itch, there's been a big debate about itch, right? Some people have said, Itch is a special, unique sensation that must have its very own kind of nerve ending in the skin because it's very unique. It always provokes scratching. Pain doesn't provoke scratching. Itch does. And other people said, no, itch is just a touch blend. In other words, it's a little bit of pain and a little bit of light touch, and you combine those together and it feels like itch, but there's not a dedicated sensor for itch. And this argument raged and raged, and now we know that there is at least one molecularly distinct, uh, unique sensor for itch, that it's not merely a blend. And the exciting thing about that is that means that we will now be able to develop anti-itch medicines that are way better than what we have right now. As you know, if you go get poison oak or poison ivy and you try to get one of those creams to relieve the itch, even a prescription cream, it's not very effective. This Technation interview discusses Johns Hopkins School of Medicine professor David Linden's 2015 book, Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. He's hard at work on a new book, due out in fall of 2020, Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, a company that put its work on hepatitis B aside and focused its virus scientists on treatments for COVID. I speak with Dr. Lawrence Blatt, the CEO of Alagos Therapeutics. And then Dr. Daniel Kraft, the chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health, breaks down the current COVID vaccines being tested. They're not all the same. And finally, we know that treatments for cancer are getting better and better. But why and how? We'll talk about one company's new technology, the progress it's made in ovarian cancer, and the next cancers currently in planning. We'll hear from Bill Newell, the CEO of Sutro Biopharma. And now, Lawrence Blatt. Well, Dr. Blatt, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You said something very curious to me when we first spoke. You said, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, we have not been able to create a long-lasting vaccine if there was no natural state of immunity for someone who caught the virus and survived. That's correct. And that's been seen over many, many decades. So we've been infected with many different viruses throughout our lives and throughout history. And some viruses, uh, when we're infected, we create lifelong immunity and we can't be reinfected. And other viruses were infected many, many times in our lifetime. And there are many different reasons for why that's the case. 
With respect to the coronavirus or the SARS-CoV-2, which is the causative agent of COVID, we know that for seasonal coronavirus, people can be infected year after year. That would be the flu? Well, there's many forms of viruses that cause flu-like symptoms. Formerly, the flu is from a virus called influenza virus, uh, which actually comes from an Italian word uh, to influence. So people thought that when they had influenza, they were uh, influenced by the phase of the moon. Uh, but later we discovered, people discovered that it was a virus. And there are many viruses, such as coronaviruses, influenza virus, rhinovirus, uh, that cause flu-like symptoms. And for many of these viruses, we don't make lasting immunity. So we get in, reinfected year after year. So we didn't draw any luck on uh, on COVID-19. Uh, it appears that that's probably true, that there isn't going to be lifelong immunity. Uh, there are now some documented cases of people being reinfected. I think there's one silver lining of, of that, and that is that in the second infections, the virus has been much more um, less lethal, for sure, uh, and causes less side effects. So many of the second infections have been asymptomatic or without any side effects. Um, so I think that's a very uh, good thing. Um, so even though you're reinfected, you're better able to uh, tolerate that infection. Now, let me ask you, does that give you a clue as to how to develop a vaccine? Because after all, your antibodies supposedly are gone. How did you get reinfected? And yet it's milder. So that brings us to um, the different types of immune responses that, that we have. Um, we have two types. A lot of people know a lot about an antibody response, and that's where our cells make uh, antibodies or proteins that bind to the virus and neutralize it, prevent it from infecting cells. But there's also something, something called cellular immunity, and that's where our cells are exposed to a virus, and then they program themselves to eliminate those cells that are infected with the virus. And that's a very important type of immunity, cellular or innate immunity. And it's probably true that the innate immunity or cellular immunity is responsible for blocking the, the many symptoms in the reinfection. And that's how viruses can, uh, what we call, attenuate or become less lethal over years. So we have this ability to block the cells that are getting infected through this cellular-based immunity as well as the innate immunity. So we're not talking about antibodies here. Correct. We're talking about cells, white blood cells or T cells that, that circulate in our body, which, which are specifically learn what the virus looks like and can seek out those cells that, where the virus is infected and eliminate those cells. I think it's really interesting, for me at least, that the Spanish flu is still with us. Uh, yes, that's, it is very interesting. Uh, the 1918 flu, uh, which probably started in Kansas and was, was uh, mislabeled the Spanish Madrid, flu. Madrid, Kansas? Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, because, because of news reporting, actually, was the, the main reason the, the newspapers in, in Spain were more open to reporting to it. Um, it may also have originated in Asia. People aren't exactly sure. But what is uh, very interesting is that uh, elements of that 1918 flu, uh, parts of the viral uh, information or genetic material, are still present in a flu that circulates today. And so it's possible that uh, this SARS-CoV-2 will become what we call endemic, meaning it will always be there. 
But hopefully over years, people will build up tolerance to it through this cell-based immunity and some uh, antibody production, and it will be less lethal and cause less disease. And in a nod to biotech, you know, it's only been about 15, 20 years since we've been able to decode things. And you wouldn't be able to decode the DNA or the RNA or, or any of those those pieces of information to know you were looking at an offspring of the Spanish flu. That's true. And, and what you're referring to is called sequencing. And, and many of the techniques for sequencing were developed right here uh, in the Bay Area in a, in a company called, in Foster City called Applied Biosystems. Uh, so, yeah, that, that information is now readily available to us. And Within a matter of weeks of the first uh, infections uh, of coronavirus, we knew the sequence, the complete sequence of the viral genetic information, and that really aided in the production of, of vaccines, and that's why vaccines were able to start clinical trials so quickly uh, because of that information. Another thing that has surfaced recently is that some of the effects of this coronavirus has continued. The virus is gone, the antibodies are gone, and yet some people are still getting uh, some of the effects. Yeah, so what happens when a virus infects our cells? Um, the virus wants to reprogram our cells to just make copies of the virus. That's all it wants to do. And in the process of that, our cells and our bodies fight back. And many of the symptoms we have uh, from being infected with viruses are really the result of our own immune system trying to block that virus from replicating. So, for example, when you have a fever, that body is heating up in response to the virus because the virus doesn't like the hot temperature. And now that may not be true for this coronavirus. This coronavirus might actually really like that hot temperature. And other things that happen involve um, the production of these protein hormones we call cytokines. And those are uh, kinetic, uh, they move cells, so cytokine comes from the word cell and kinetic put together, and these things move cells. And what happens is that can go haywire. And so what we think is happening in the coronavirus infection is that for some people, that immune response turns on. It's like the virus turns the light switch on. But then when the virus is gone, the light switch remains on. And the problem is getting those people to turn the light switch off. So there are various therapies, and one of the recent uh, breakthroughs has been the, the use of actually steroids in late-stage uh, cases, um, and it's shown to be uh, benefiting in survival. So uh, that's been recently approved by the FDA because it's, that's how you can turn off that light switch or turn off that immune response. In addition to that, um, some of the other things that seem to be happening with the virus is um, market effects on uh, the cells that line our blood vessels, so vascular effects. And many of the long-term effects that we see are really uh, involved the damage uh, to this vascular system. Uh, so we see long-term effects on cardiology and even effects on our cognitive or thinking ability because of uh, effects on, on the blood supply to the brain. Uh, so the virus is long gone. But the switch is still on and the damage, the re, you know, the recovering cells and the damage is done. Now, in some cases, cells can repopulate, but in many cases, they can't. So, for example, if we do damage to our lungs and we get scar tissue in our lungs, we can't replace that scar tissue. So we have to live with that for the rest of our lives. So those are some of the reasons that there's longer term effects of this virus well beyond the initial infection. 
And you don't want to get this virus. Uh, I, I think if you can avoid getting the virus, um, it's it's certainly well thought out strategy. I don't support the idea of, of creating herd immunity through lack of uh, precaution, uh, because while it is true that uh, certain segments of our population are more at risk for these uh, deleterious effects or difficult effects, there are also people that have no pre-existing conditions um, that can have uh, these effects and these long-term effects. And right now, it's very hard to predict who might have these effects and who might not. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Lawrence Blatt. Dr. Blatt is the CEO of Alagos Therapeutics, the former Global Infectious Diseases Therapeutic Area Head at Janssen, the Chief Scientific Officer of Intermune, and Senior Director of Interferon Research at Amgen. He's been working on chronic viral infections in the biotech space for a number of decades. Now, let me ask you a little more about herd immunity. It seems to me you might work out herd immunity if it was one of these diseases, one of these viruses that once you got it, you were permanently immune so that you could be a member of a pretty large herd and you wouldn't have it and you wouldn't get it. But if you could get it again, the herd's never immune. Right. And in this case, unlike uh, viruses like polio or measles, where you can have lifelong immunity. In this case, there isn't lifelong immunity, at least with respect to the uh, antibody response. We can't really generate herd immunity per se. So I think what we're going to have to see in the future is a combination of immunity. So I think vaccine strategies are very important. In addition to that, we need therapeutics, um, which treat people that are infected. So the difference between a vaccine and a therapeutic is that a vaccine prevents infection and a therapeutic treats people who are infected. So because we can't get herd immunity, we're going to need therapeutics. Um, but we also have to practice uh, good behavior. So we, we have to practice social distancing, uh, wearing of masks, so that we can get the numbers of patients down um, and, and really block the transmission in, in, in that way. So really, it's going to take all of those things together. I, I don't think you're going to have a vaccine uh, where you can inoculate the whole population and eradicate this coronavirus. Now, your company, Alagos, has been working in treating a different virus, different bad actor, and that would be hepatitis B. How different are these two viruses? And are they close enough so your treatment might work for COVID-19? The answer is they're, they're very different viruses. They're really not related to each other in any way. So therapies that were developed for hepatitis B virus, such as the ones we're developing at Oligos, or even on-the-market therapies for hepatitis C virus or uh, HIV, really cannot treat uh, COVID. And for that reason, when we first learned of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, we made a choice at Oligos to divert resources to creating what we call purpose-built therapeutic drugs to treat uh, covid uh, and we're focusing on a number of key parts of the way that the virus makes copies of itself uh, in order to make these therapeutics. So you said, hey, guys, we could put the play on right here. We know enough about viruses and how to combat them. Let's, we're just going to put the rest on the shelf for a bit, and we're going to come back and do this. That's what we did. We have a, 
a great group of scientists at the company, many of whom have uh, co-invented antiviral drugs that are on the market for hepatitis C and HIV and, and other viruses. So um, we put those people to work on COVID, um, or SARS-CoV-2 is the, actually the virus itself. And we've made very good progress in, in, the, in the last uh, few months. I think another thing is very important to mention, and that is that, you know, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the seventh coronavirus to jump from animals to people. And the pace of that jump has been accelerated in recent years. So some people might have heard of SARS. Some people might have heard of MERS. And now everyone's heard of COVID. And the thought is that it's very likely there'll be another coronavirus jump in the future. And part of our mission for therapeutics is to have therapeutics that act against all of these different types of coronavirus so that if a new uh, strain jumps, we have a purpose-built therapeutic for that strain. Now, remember, we have a mainstream audience. There's not a bunch of t scientists in white coats sitting in, the, sitting in rows waiting to hear this. How does it work? What are you doing? Well, so remember I said that uh, when a virus infects a cell, it, it tells that cell to make a copy of the virus. And it has to uh, tell the cell to make tools uh, for that copy. And those tools are uh, protein in nature. So the virus tells the cell, forget about making your own proteins, make my proteins. And in particular, the coronavirus, when it makes its proteins, um, it makes it uh, in a long string. So imagine a long string of, of popcorn, okay? And in order for the virus now to assemble itself into a three-dimensional structure, it has to cut up that string of popcorn and assemble itself in into three, a popcorn ball. Into a popcorn ball, and 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 you've seen pictures of that. You know, if you've if you've watched any uh, newscast, you see that picture of that popcorn ball, um, and that comes from cutting up a very long string of proteins. And so we're stopping that stage. So we're stopping the, um, with our, our, our drugs that we're making, we're stopping the virus from being able to cut up that long string of popcorn into the individual proteins. So there, it's really just still all strung out. Right. And that blocks the virus from making copies of itself. And what happens is when the, when the virus makes copies of itself, those go on to infect other cells. And this just keeps happening and keeps happening uh, until the immune system can control uh, the virus in the way that we've talked about earlier. And so by blocking the ability of the virus to make copies of itself, we're really stopping the infection in its tracks. And uh, we're hoping to, as a result, uh, greatly shorten the course of therapy or the length of, of, of the infection uh, and also stimulate the immune system uh, to be able to respond to the virus more efficiently because there will be less virus that it has to deal with. So one of the problems is the coronavirus makes so many copies of itself, it just outruns the immune system. So the immune system has a chance to say, this cell, is, we don't want it around here. We don't want the cell around. And then the immune system and other signals say to the cell, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself. And that cell will die. And that will further eliminate the uh, and limit the infection. Give the, give the uh, body a chance just to do what it does best. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, so that's our approach uh, at our company, and we're very fortunate. We're actually working internationally. Uh, so we're fortunate to be partnered with a uh, very prestigious university in Belgium, uh, the uh, KU, Christian University Leuven in uh, Belgium, uh, where there's a very uh, 
a prominent virologist, uh, Johan Netz, that we work with. And what's interesting is they've built uh, a facility where we can actually grow uh, SARS-CoV-2. It's very controlled. I call it the spacesuit lab. So you literally go in there full spacesuit and you work in uh, glove boxes uh, because we can't grow this virus in a normal laboratory setting. So we're working closely with, with this group uh, to, to make these, these drugs effective. Now, where are you in this? Is that understandable? Or are you just doing a lot of experimentation? Uh, so we have uh, lead, lead molecules that are uh, quite potent now. Uh, just in a very short period of time, we've, we've been able to find lead molecules uh, that are very potent in cell culture. Uh, there's a long way between cell culture uh, and giving an effective drug. So it's still early days. We've only been at it a few months. Uh, but we are accelerating, and we hope to be in patients as, as quickly as we can. Um, but we have to guarantee that, that we're safe uh, and make sure that we're not going to do harm to people. Um, and so we're working in that, in that arena. Now, are you getting on a plane and taking a cup of these molecules all the way to uh, Belgium? Saying here you go. How does no, this we're, work? <laughs> we're, no, no, we 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 make the chemicals here. Uh, we also have our our own laboratory in Belgium, uh, so we make some of those chemicals in Belgium, and then we ship them. Uh, they get into uh, a World Courier is is a very specialized courier that will hand deliver things like this, um, and they're taken to Belgium where where the where the samples are run. Uh, we also can do some things in our lab, so. Because we're trying to make uh, these molecules active against all coronaviruses, here in uh, the Bay Area, in our lab, we're growing the seasonal coronavirus. So the strain that circulates year after year, we can grow in our facility. So we're testing first uh, against seasonal coronavirus, and then the molecules that look really good get sent to Belgium. Now, this is a fairly new company, uh, Alagos. Um, and I know your former company, Alios? Alios. Alios. Yeah. Yeah. That one you sold, I know, to Johnson & Johnson. Right. You can't take a small company and suddenly you're distributing to every place, you're handling it. Are you already engaging larger companies like Johnson & Johnson no, to talk not yet. about it's, where to go? It's too early to do that. But I think the the bottom line is, and, you know, I, I, I used to work for a company called Amgen. You, met, you mentioned that. And I was fortunate to work with one of the founders, George Rathman. And he always said, if, if you do what's right for patients, if you build the right medicine, the rest will fall into place. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're making drugs that are, can effectively treat coronavirus. If those drugs are active and, and they work, there'll be many opportunities for partnerships uh, with large pharmaceutical companies to distribute the drug. But right now we're really focused on the science and, and producing the, the, the most efficacious and safe molecules that we can find. Would you go into animals next? Uh, so there are some animal models uh, for uh, coronavirus. Uh, we can infect hamsters with coronavirus, believe it or not. Uh, so that would be the next stage of testing. But not all animals? What other no. animals aren't, don't like coronavirus? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think the answer is it hasn't exhaustively been studied. So in many cases, uh, for example, the, the human influenza virus, the, there are certain animals that influenza will replicate in or grow in, um, certainly uh, birds um, and, and horses and, and uh pigs, they grow well in those. But other viruses don't, human viruses actually don't grow well uh, in animal species. 
because the SARS-CoV-2 is so new, people haven't done exhaustive studies to see what animals this will grow in and what animals it won't grow in. It turns out the hamster is a very useful uh, small animal. They're small, they're, they're, and uh, they, they can be infected with coronavirus, so that's, that's what's used. I've been speaking with Dr. Lawrence Blatt, the CEO of Elegus Therapeutics. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, how many different kinds of COVID vaccines are there? Dr. Daniel Kraft knows. And what would a next-generation cancer drug look like? Bill Newell from Sutro Biopharma fills us in. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Dr. Lawrence Blatt, the CEO of Allegus Therapeutics and the former head of Global Infectious Diseases for Janssen. So first of all, um, typically or, or historically, uh, the development of a new vaccine can take a decade or more. And, and you might ask, well, why? What takes so long? So really, you have to know uh, quite a number of things. The, the first and very, you know, easiest thing to find out is whether or not giving this uh, vaccine will cause the production of antibodies. And, and generally, you can find that out pretty quickly, okay? But the next question is a little more difficult, and that is, okay, I know that you make antibodies, but does, does those antibodies or do those antibodies protect you from becoming infected? And the only way you know that is to do a very large population of patients some getting placebo or, or not active uh, injection, and some getting the vaccine, and counting the number of people that get coronavirus or COVID um, who got placebo versus the number who got it with the uh, vaccine. And the issue is that if you have a population that you're studying that doesn't have a high rate of infection, which in spite the number of cases in the United States, the overall percentage of people becoming infected is still low, right? So it makes doing those studies hard and difficult. So the question will be, 
you know, for the vaccine studies that we're running now, will there be enough cases in the placebo group to tell us without a doubt that the virus protects you, uh, that the vaccine protects you from getting the virus? So that's an unknown question uh, that we don't know. The other thing is safety. And the small studies that we do tell us, is the drug safe generally, right? So if you have a side effect that occurs in half the people who take the drug or the vaccine, then you'll learn that from a small study. But what if you have a very bad side effect that only occurs in, you know, less than 1% of the people that take it? And what if that side effect is so unusual that you, you wouldn't even expect it to happen? And so you have to do enough uh, vaccination in a large enough number of people to see this. And then when you're studying that many people, people have things that happen to them, right? So if I was just monitoring 100 people for a month, they might get a headache, they might get a fever, uh, they might get muscle aches, okay, without ever doing anything to them. So you have to know whether or not they were going to get that headache or fever or muscle ache because of whatever event is occurring in their life or because they got the vaccine. And so these things take a lot of time and large numbers of patients uh, to, to understand whether or not you have side effects, whether or not the, the vaccines will be efficacious. And I think the caution is that if there was an emergency use authorization granted for a vaccine, that we have to see that as an intermediate step. That, that because this is such an emergent situation that the um, risk-benefit ratio favors allowing that vaccine to be available ahead of knowing all of this information. And people have to make an informed decision for themselves as based on what information is known as to whether they want to expose themselves to that vaccine. At the same time, the FDA just can't go out and say, we like what you're doing, we're going to approve you. No, they can't because the pharmaceutical company has to submit the data. And as you may have heard, uh, several of the, the, the large uh, vaccine, uh, most, most of them, uh, companies that are, that are working in the COVID area have, have made or issued a statement saying that they're not going to file data ahead of having this vital information that I'm describing. And I think that's very important uh, because, you know, it's very important to have a vaccine, but it's maybe just as or not or more important to have one that we know is efficacious and we know is safe. And, and those things only can be known over time. The, the other thing I think we need to have sort of a managed expectation about is it's not likely that 100% everyone who takes the vaccine will make antibodies and everyone will be protected. Some people uh, will and some people won't. And we have to understand why. Who are the people that do get a good response? What can we say about them? Um, and we have to think about that uh, in the distribution of the vaccine because, you know, we have in, in the United States, we have never distributed any pharmaceutical to the vast population that, that we would like to distribute to for a vaccine. So there's approximately 330 million people in the United States. And the vaccine requires, at least the ones that are in the clinic now, two doses. So, so you're talking about more than 500 million doses of something 
Uh, and, and that's a lot of lot to produce. And I, I think it's really good that we've gotten ahead of that and, and people are producing vaccines at risk. Um, but, but these are a lot of things to think about. So knowing who the vaccine benefits uh, is important. Uh, and then knowing what the benefits are uh, is very important. I think what's so interesting about this is that at this uh, recording, uh, six biopharmas have signed on to this saying, until we believe it's it's really working, we're not going to submit to the FDA for review. Um, and I've got a feeling there are going to be other biopharmaceutical companies jumping on board as well. The real issue is, is it, in a sense, depoliticizes it? A, a government arm can't say, well, we have a... We just want to do this, and so we're going to uh, approve. It depoliticizes. It sends it back to science. As you know, the the virus has no political affiliation, and and it doesn't care what your race is, what your socioeconomic status is. Uh, You can be infected uh, in in any case. So I think it's very important that this is not a political issue. This is a public health issue. It is a world health issue. Uh, so it shouldn't be politicized. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you come back, see us again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My guest today is Dr. Lawrence Blatt. Dr. Blatt is the CEO of Alagos Therapeutics. More information is available at Alagos.com. That's A-L-I-G-O-S, Alagos.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We hear that there are a whole lot of companies working on vaccines. Are they all pretty much the same? Or are there distinctly different approaches? Dr. Daniel Kraft is the chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Moira. I have to ask you, you know, we keep hearing about the the top three vaccines, the top 10 vaccines, the top this vaccines, all these vaccines. What kind of different kinds of vaccines? Are they each different? Are there groups of them? What are we looking at? Well, for coronavirus, COVID-19, there's several different vaccines uh, under development. Um, Some of them are quite new, like genetic vaccines. These are vaccines that use the coronavirus's own genes to provoke an immune response. And some of the most exciting and far along uh, companies like Moderna and Inovio are, are making vaccines that end up sort of generating the DNA that's tied to the RNA of this virus that makes those spike proteins so that when you take uh, a vaccination from Moderna, it's not the actual protein itself. It's the messenger RNA, the mRNA, then ends up producing the protein of which the immune system reacts against. So that's a very uh, more novel approach. The more common ones we're usually used to are more the protein-based vaccines where you'll take uh, the bug, in this case of the virus, um, separate it into its components, maybe kill it, irradiate it, or produce the protein itself, and use those elements, again, often the spike protein, the ones people have seen in all the COVID pictures, uh, to generate that immune response. And uh, a third would be viral vector vaccines, where vaccines that use the vir- other forms of virus to deliver the corona- coronavirus genes into cells, that's what's triggering the immune response. So those are kind of the three basic categories. Several companies and academic groups have been developing vaccines, including for coronavirus, uh, different forms of coronavirus in the past. They had a bit of a head start, um, but things have moved very, very rapidly. And it's not just the combination of the technology. It's partnering with the regulators, let's say the the FDA, to help these trials fast track. It's uh, working 
past even the vaccine itself to think about the fact that we might need, you know, 4 billion vaccine doses. There's only, uh, you know, less than half a billion glass vials in the world today. How do we get ahead of thinking about distribution, the cold change process of, of maybe work with companies like Coca-Cola that have sort of nailed how we distribute <laughs> anywhere in the world uh, a product? So um, it's beyond the vaccine. We've talked in other episodes about design thinking. How do you think about everything about not just having the physical vaccine, but how you deliver it, how do you track it? And how do we look at the impact on the immune system of those who receive it? We still don't quite yet know whether even patients who've had coronavirus, if their immune status is going to protect them from future uh, COVID infections, and whether vaccines, hopefully safe and effective ones, are going to require annual or every couple year uh, changes, particularly if the virus mutates. If I look at the baby boomers, they're like, boy, the polio vaccine, that really worked great for me when I was a kid, and it's protected me my entire life. Now, are these vaccines going to work for the elderly? We've talked about the fact that your underlying genome may affect who uh, is most at risk, um, your blood type, which is tied to your genes, but also how you might respond to vaccinations. Not everyone has the same wiring of their of their immune system. Um, there have been, by the way, uh, Many of us, uh, particularly born in the 50s or 60s, had what's called the BCG vaccine. It was actually developed in the early 1900s as a protection against tuberculosis. Um, there's trials now looking to, f- to see whether individuals who got the BCG vaccine have an immune system that is more resilient against COVID. So we're going to be continuing to learn about the overlap of our antibodies, how we measure them, our T cells or B cells in the context of COVID and other infections. Everyone is reading again and again about these vaccines. How do they know when something's new? Everyday people. Well, in May, Moderna, one of the leading companies developing this uh, RNA-based uh, vaccine, came, came out with a press release showing promise in their phase one trials, and the stock market jumped dramatically. And it was sort of science by press release. There's so much pressure around this that we need to be careful about all this sort of information coming out, whether it's around vaccines or around hydroxychloroquine, uh, you know, we need to be careful about how the science rolls out. But I think one of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic is the collaborations that have been formed, the science that's accelerating, that's being applied to, to COVID-19, but also is going to help in the future collaborations around other diseases, public health, maybe helping us collaborate around global warming and the interconnections between scientists, uh, startups, big pharma companies, uh, health insurance companies, individuals, uh, and all of us kind of rowing together is going to hopefully lead to a a healthier, safer uh, world going forward. All hands on deck. Row forward. Hey, great. See you next time. See ya. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. I think we all know that treatments for cancer and autoimmune diseases are getting better and better. What we don't usually know is why or how. Today we're talking about a next-generation approach with Bill Newell, the CEO of Sutro Biopharma. Well, Bill, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks, Mara. It's my pleasure to be back with you again. Well, you've been on before, but let's remind everyone what Sutro Biopharma does. Well, Sutro Biopharma is a company that employs a novel technology that isn't widely used in the industry. And we're employing that technology to make next-generation cancer therapeutics. Now, cancer therapeutics 
have been evolving over the last 40 years. We start with chemotherapy, and many patients who suffer from cancer are treated with chemotherapy. The next generation beyond chemotherapy was antibody therapy, and that has been very effective for many women but, and men, but there are breakthroughs in therapy that occur. And so the next generation beyond that is to actually combine the two, take the best of what the antibody does and the best of what the chemotherapy does and be more impactful on the tumor microenvironment and sparing the patient some of the side effect profile that you get from chemotherapy. Now, people understand, boy, this chemotherapy, it kills cells. So we, we want to kill the cancer cells. A lot of people aren't totally clear about what the antibodies do that had to do with the cancer cells. Well, that's an interesting point. Antibodies can also actually affect a killing of a cancer cell independently as well. And so, for example, if you have the right antibody that is specifically guided, like a laser, to the tumor that you want to get to, it can disrupt the way the tumor grows and spreads. And that is great as long as the tumor is expressing the target that the antibody is seeking. If the tumor stops expressing that target because it is mutated away from what it was at the time that you first introduced the antibody, then the antibody is no longer effective. And so our concept is to take that exquisite targeting and give an extra oomph by adding this super potent chemotherapy directly into the tumor microenvironment. We don't want it sloshing around the body and killing healthy cells. We want it going preferentially to the tumor, doing its job, and then leaving the body to minimize the side effect profile for the patient. And, and that sloshing around killing any cell is what has caused all the losing of the hair and any number of things, because it's killing healthy cells. That's exactly right. It is nonspecific uh, toxicity that the body just has to work its way through. And so it causes fatigue, it causes nausea, it causes other physiological issues when you have a chemotherapy. But if you can take one that is even more potent than the body could normally tolerate, put it in a very small dose, almost microscopic, and then use the antibody to guide that right to the tumor microenvironment, and then find a way once it's done its job killing the tumor cell to be removed from the body without killing healthy cells. Now you've got the next generation cancer therapy, and that's one of the things that we've been working on at Sutro Biopharma. So your technology joins those two, the antibody and the drug. That's exactly right. And we do it in a very uh, smart way. We have a lot of engineering prowess, and we use our technology to identify the exact right spot to attach that chemotherapy to the antibody. Other people's technologies are not as specific, and so they don't have the ability to precisely place the chemotherapy onto the antibody in a way that maximizes its killing potential, but on tumor targets and tumor cells, but minimizes the way that uh, the body's healthy cells are affected. And that's what we uniquely are able to do. So we're talking about antibodies that will only attach to a cancer cell. That is the, ta that is the ideal antibody that it only attaches to a cancer cell. There are some instances, however, where healthy cells may also uh, 
be attracted to that antibody. And we don't so, want that. We don't want that. So what you have to do in that instance is actually find a way to find two points of attachment on the cancer cell and do it in such a way that on a healthy cell, those two points of attachment do not exist. And so for one of the programs that we are working on with our partner, EMD Serono, we are doing this bispecific antibody uh, drug conjugate. And by bispecific, I mean in order for it to be effective and attach and kill cells, both of those points of attachment need to be on the tumor cell. And because we're not finding both of those points of attachment on a healthy cell, the antibody drug conjugate just ignores those, and it hones in specifically on the tumor cells. So your technology then is taking two antibodies and a drug? Yes, it's very complex. This will be the first molecule like this that has been in clinical development in human history. And so we're excited. That molecule will start a trial in the first quarter of next year in non-small cell lung cancer and in esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Two very difficult cancers to treat. And so by using this revolutionary approach, we're going to be actually taking the first opportunity to prove that, in fact, you can get the specificity from the dual binding that um, allows you to obviate a lot of the toxicity uh, to the healthy cells. And that's a very exciting proposition for patients. Quite a lot of technology there. It's so simple when you talk about it. Well, just, you know, glue the, these two antibodies and little, you know, drug. <laughs> it's a, really yeah, it's a simple technology <laughs> that we've been working on for over 16 years. There so there's uh, a lot of science, a lot of high science and a lot of manufacturing prowess that goes into all of this, too. These are not mo easy molecules to design and they're not easy molecules to manufacture. So we've had to build our own manufacturing facility in order to really control the process so that the molecules that we put into clinical development are exactly what we want them to be. Now, you've already been in clinical trials with your single antibody, single cancer drug uh, combination. Uh, and I, I believe there is a recent one in ovarian cancer. Has that read out yet? Yes, that's, that's a very important drug for us in a very, uh, a, a very tragic disease. So uh, we're working uh, on a drug that is probably the, the next line of therapy for ovarian cancer patients who've been through the usual chemotherapy regimens. And the women who've been enrolled in our study have had, on average, five prior lines of therapy. They are, they've been exposed to every conceivable therapeutic option for them. And frankly, if our trial wasn't available to them, they would likely be headed to hospice or other palliative care uh, for the very short duration of their lives. Uh, we were excited to announce last week that in a study that is still ongoing, where still we have 40% of the women being treated, uh, we were able to achieve eight partial responses out of the 33 women who have participated in our study at the doses that we think are the more active ones uh, and the ones that are going to be more relevant to our future drug development activities. That's a 24% response rate. In a category of patients who admittedly would probably only see responses in less than 10% of their population. 
We also had a number of women, about 17 of the 33, who exhibited a continued pattern of stable disease, meaning their disease had been progressing before they came onto our study, and on the course of treatment that we gave them, their disease did not progress. It stayed stable. And what does that mean? That means they're able to enjoy their life for that much longer because the cancer is not growing in them, and we're able to really offer them a good quality of life during that time frame. I think what was most exciting for me, Moira, about the data was that of all of those women, four of them have been on our study for over 12 months, and those four are still continuing on study today. And we had another seven who have been on our study for six months, and they are continuing today. So the prospect of being at the very end of your hope for therapy and to be able to participate in our clinical trial and live another six, 12, or more months is something that we know God is said. very meaningful for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, now, I'm kind of interested, when you say response, what do you mean by response? We know that stable means it didn't progress, and so 17 out of the 33 did not progress. But these eight, that there was a clear response, what are we, how are we measuring that response? You know, we, we measure that response in the size of the tumor that is selected to be measured uh, to see whether or not the patient is actually responding to the therapy. So if you think that you start the study and the size of your tumor is a certain volume, at regular intervals, we look and uh, x-ray and um, use other techniques to remeasure the size of that tumor. And if you shrink the size of the tumor by 30% or more, that is deemed to be a response. And so all of these eight women, we have radiologic evidence that their tumors were shrinking by at least 30%. And in one case, uh, the one of the women who's been on the longest on our study, her tumor shrank 88%. That's a shock. Yeah, it's, I mean, she's thrilled to be able to um, participate in this study. It's really meant quite a lot for her and her family, and we're thrilled with the outcome and the benefit that she's received from our therapy. These people have been through therapy after therapy after therapy, and there were none in the line simply to join a trial like this. That's exactly right. They, they were at the end of their options, and so thankfully we were both able to get this trial started before the COVID-19 pandemic began. And thankfully, we've been able to continue to provide therapy to these women, notwithstanding the pandemic. I want to thank the women who participated in our study. I want to thank the doctors and the staff who made it possible for these women to continue to be treated. Uh, you know, it's a, a terrible situation that our country is in, that the world is in, but industry and Sutro Biopharma, we've been able to find ways to continue to offer hope and therapy and treatment uh, to patients with very serious diseases. We need to be able to deal with the pandemic, but we also need to be able to keep people moving forward with their lives. And we've been blessed to be able to do that. I keep thinking about how when Apple first came out with the Macintosh, at that point in history, if you had a computer piece of hardware, you developed all the software for it, and you controlled everything. And for the first time ever, 
you got out there with the Macintosh, and Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the two Steves, said, hey, we're going to let anybody develop an application for this that wants to. And it, it completely blew open the laptop and the computer industry, the personal computer industry. And I think about a technology like this, the ability to blow open cancer treatment, you know, that is has to be a strategy in itself. There is so little that we know even today about how cancer operates, how we get it, how it mutates, that no one company can actually develop all the drugs that might treat cancer by themselves. You really need to take an industry-wide approach in order to maximize the opportunity that you have to be disruptive to the cancer cells. So we're partnered with Bristol-Myers Squibb, working with our technology and their understanding of the biology behind multiple myeloma. That's in clinical development today, and I hope that in the next six to 12 months, they'll talk about how that drug is performing uh, in their clinical trial. Uh, I've mentioned the molecule we're working with EMD Serona that targets two parts of the tumor cell in order to deliver the chemotherapy there. And then the, the third program that we have is with Merck, uh, and we are working with them on a therapy that can be very impactful to their great flagship drug, Keytruda. And it works great in some people, but it doesn't work so well in others. And so we're working with them on a very different molecule that could be dosed in combination with Keytruda to broaden the effect that Keytruda has. For us, it's been finding the people who know the best and the most amount about biology and then integrating what we do well from an engineering and manufacturing standpoint together to give a great outcome for the patients. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Well, I, I have to wish you good luck, Bill. Thanks for coming in. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. And it's been a pleasure to see you again. My guest today is Bill Newell, the CEO of Sutro Biopharma. More information is available on the web at sutrobio.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.